Cortland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Well, hi everybody, Don Wardlow here, Baseball Lifer in Residence. I hope it's been a good week and a good 4th of July. We don't have a guest today. Like last week, we're going to have a special show, and this is the last of season one. We're going to take a little break. We're going to present some encore broadcasts. We're going to rerun some of our earlier shows in the series. Starting next Friday, we're going to rerun our Hall of Fame episode, and we'll present encore programming until the second Friday in September, the Friday after Labor Day. Once that happens, hopefully we'll have some more guests and we'll bring them on and we'll talk baseball. I asked a trivia question last week at the end of our program that had to do with this week's show. I uh, didn't get any answers, so I'll tell you. I'll tell you the question again and I'll give you the answer this time. It has to do with the All-Star Game, and this entire show is going to be related to the All-Star Game. The question was, what was the reason for the first All-Star Game? The reason for the first All-Star Game, which was held in 1933 at Comiskey Park in Chicago, was to raise money for needy, chronically injured ballplayers. Nobody in baseball anticipated the amount of play that first all-Star game would get had a sellout crowd at Comiskey Park in the depths of the Depression, raised a good bit of money for the cause, and by the end of that first game, the two leagues had pretty well decided that this was going to be an annual event that would move around the cities that had baseball at that time. When we come back, we're going to listen to some highlights from the All-Star Game from when it meant something in those years when the players were honored to be selected. The managers managed like an actual game, which certainly does not happen anymore. So I'm going to bring you some highlights from some of those early All-Star Games and then a very few from later on. My first All-Star Game that I ever heard, we'll have a highlight from that. We'll have a highlight from... 2008 and one from 2018, which I think is the best all-star game that has been played in a good number of years. So we'll have the highlights from past all-star games. If you keep it where it is, following a word from our sponsor, Cortland Computer Services. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. 
On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Woodlow here, and this is our special episode, paying tribute to the All-Star Game the way it was, when the All-Star Game meant something and being an All-Star was a matter of pride. Now, the first All-Star Game that exists is from 1934. Before that year, there was no way to record a long event like an All-Star Game. But by 1934, they came up with a way. They recorded on 16-inch or 20-inch transcription discs. They would each hold 15 minutes of material, whether it was a comedy show or a boxing match or a baseball game. So a long three-hour baseball game, as this one was, the 34 All-Star game, could take anywhere from 6 to 12 discs, depending if they had one side or two sides. Now, you're going to hear the opening to the 1934 All-Star Game. The word pregame show hadn't come into language yet and wouldn't for another 30 years. But Graham McNamee, who was a pioneer of broadcast play-by-play, he broadcast the long count fight with Jack Dempsey. He broadcast Max Baer winning the heavyweight championship and also losing it. And Graham McNamee did a number of World Series broadcasts. Now, by 1934, NBC just had him do the opening and the closing commentaries. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. Today we're out at the Polo Grounds, that historic old home of the New York Giants, nestled in the lee of Coogan's Bluff on the island of Manhattan. The occasion, of course, is the playing of the second annual All-Star Baseball game between the outstanding performers of the National and the American Leagues. And boy, what an aggregation of ball tossers are wandering around there, down there on that field right now. The pick of the world, no question about that. The crowd is tremendous, the stands are packed all the way around. If you don't know the polo ground, I'll just tell you uh, quickly that it is a double-decked affair uh, running about four uh, four fifths to five sixths of the way around the entire enclosure there are all there's only a small part of the grounds out in uh, center field which is devoted to the bleachers the rest is all double deck grandstands every seat in the house is filled now almost at least i can't see any vacant seats any place from my place up here in the in the second tier uh, off third base you know last year the first of these all-star games was played out at comiskey field in chicago and that ended with a victory for the younger league, the American, the final score being four to nothing. That day, a young fellow who had his 20th birthday in big league baseball, only the day before yesterday, he broke up that ball game with a towering home run with a man on the pad. 
His name, as you all know, is Babe Ruth. And for years, his specialty has been breaking up ball games. Graham McNamee doing the opening for the 1934 All-Star Game. Starting in the first inning, going into the second, the National League pitcher, King Carl Hubble, the modern master of the screwball, pulled off an amazing pitching feat, the kind of pitching heroics that can only happen in an All-Star Game and has never happened since King Carl did this. He struck out five men, all of whom would go to the Hall of Fame, and some of their names are still well-known today. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, who was with the Philadelphia A's and was a mighty home run hitter of the day, Al Simmons of the Chicago White Sox, another powerful home run hitter, and Joe Cronin of the Boston Red Sox. All five of those men would go into the Hall of Fame, but King Carl Hubble and his screwball struck them all out one by one. And you're going to hear the, the end of those five strikeouts as described by the voice of CBS on that All-Star game, Franz Locks. Two strikes and one ball is the count on Babe Ruth. Derringer on second. Manus on first base. No one down. First half of the first inning. Hubble's getting set. Here's the pitch. And it's strike three, Carl. Babe Ruth is called out on strike for the initial out. Babe Ruth called out on strike. Lou Gary gets the batter. One man down. Still have Charlie Gehringer on second base. Tiny Manouche on first base. Three balls, two strikes. He's on the mound getting set. Runners on first and second. One man down. Hubble getting set. Here's the pitch. They all start running. He strikes out. And there's a throw to third. But he's safe. Nope, safe at third. Charlie Gehringer. Both runners started. As Hubble got ready for the pitch. And Gary went down swinging for the out. Derringer taking a nice lead off of third. He starts his line up to the pitch. Here it is. And he went down swinging. Buck struck out for the third out, retiring the side. And the fans here at the Polo Grounds are going wild. Carl Hubble proceeded to do nothing else but strike out Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Jimmy Fox. And that's quite an assignment for any pitcher to do. Two strikes and one ball is the count on Al Simmons. First man up for the American Leaguers. The first half of the second inning. Hubble's back on the mound again. Just his signal. Starting the old lineup for the next pitch. Two strikes and one ball. Here it comes. And he went down swinging. Simmons struck out. So the set of that one has four straight strikeouts for Carl Hubble. One ball and two strikes is the count on Joe Cronin. Hubble's on the mound again. Starts the old lineup for the pitch. And he went down Went down swinging for the second out, and that's five straight strikeouts for Carl Hubble. Believe me, that boy was never more right in his life than he is out this afternoon. Carl Hubble was never better, and neither was Franz Locks. Next up on the Baseball Lifer podcast, special All-Star Game edition, we're going to have two Lou Gehrig home runs. He hit them in back-to-back All-Star Games in 1936 and in 1937. In 1936, the All-Star Game was played at Braves Field in Boston. There was only a half a crowd because there were rumors that the game was sold out, and that scared a lot of people away from coming out to Braves Field, which 
may I add, is now part of the campus of Northeastern University in Boston. You're going to hear back-to-back all-star home runs from Lou Gehrig. The first one from Boston, the broadcaster, is Fred Hoy, the Boston Red Sox and Braves broadcaster. And then the 37 home run by Lou Gehrig from the All-Star Game in Washington. And that is broadcast by the Phillies' Bill Dyer. Back in the league All-Stars, I mean, just two hits. Off the next league pitch. They got both those off Hubble. And a long play. That may be a home run. That may be a home run. In right feet. It is a home run. Home run by Lou Gehrig. A tremendous man. Out there about 430 feet. And what we call here in Boston, the jury box speeches out by the scoreboard in right field. A terrific count by Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig with Joe DiMaggio on first two away in the last half of the third inning. Here's Dean leaning forward again, getting that signal. Shakes his head, he didn't like that one. Now he okays it, brings the glove down, moves the arm. Here it is, and it's a ball. Lou Gehrig, home runs from the All-Star Game of 1936 and 37. Four years after that All-Star Game, 1941. This was the first time an All-Star Game would be won on a home run, what's now called a walk-off home run. Ted Williams would be the man to hit it. And you're going to hear two broadcasts of that Ted Williams home run. The first one is the local broadcast from WWJ in Detroit with Ty Tyson. And the next one will be the national broadcast with Red Barber describing Ted Williams' home run to end the 1941 All-Star Game and win it for the American League. And this, boys and girls, is a ball game and has been one all afternoon. A real All-Star affair. They've done everything, made errors, good plays, hits. The pitch, Williams hits a towering fly. It looks as though it's way up in there, way up, way up in the top, hits the top deck, the third deck, and this ball game is over with the American League coming through again. It'll count as a home run because the ball is up on the top deck of the right field stands. Everybody grabbing Ted, patting him on the back. Joe Cronin has his hat off and is giving him a Dutch rub. Artie Fletcher is also on his back. And the kid really laced that one out. Boy, oh boy, it didn't go over the roof, but it hit the third deck barrier in right field, way up there, plenty high. How do you like this for our setting? Two outs. The tying run is third, the winning run at first, last half of the ninth inning, and the 400 hitter of today at the plate, Ted Williams. Left-hand batter. Passed all, ready, delivers, high outside. I wouldn't have missed this for anything. Joe Gordon, the tying run, leads down off third. Castro pitches, Williams swings, there's a high drive, going deep, deep. It is a home run. 
win against the tip top of the right field stand. Ted Williams just missed by a couple of feet, hitting the ball completely out of the park, completely over the tip top of the right field stand. As it was, he hit against the facade in front of the tip top. A tremendous home run that brought in three runs and turned what looked to be a National League win on the strength of Archie Vaughn's two successive home runs into an American League 7-5 win worth coming 10,000 miles to see. Red Barber and Ty Tyson both describing Ted Williams' walk-off home run to end the 1941 All-Star Game. Only Ty Tyson, the Detroit broadcaster, was the only one I ever heard call his audience boys and girls. And he did that, not just on that game, on others that I've heard and that I've got in my collection. Fast forward a year to 1942. The war is underway. And the American League All-Stars won the regular All-Star game, beating the National League. And the prize that year was the winning team would play against a team of servicemen who had already joined the Army of the Navy. The pitcher is newly minted sailor Bob Feller, and he's facing Joe DiMaggio, who would join the Navy the next year, but was still a civilian in 1942 and still playing for the Yankees. And he's facing Bob Feller, and the man who's going to describe this is a man named Jack Graney. He was the first baseball player to become a baseball broadcaster. And in all the searching I've done, what you're about to hear is the only sound I have ever found from that first pioneer, former player to become a broadcaster, Jack Graney. He played his career and broadcast in Cleveland with the Indians. And that's where this ball game was played. You're going to hear him describing the confrontation between Joe DiMaggio and Bob Feller. Here he comes. Strike swinging. First ball broke outside. DiMaggio swung hard and missed. He steps out of the batter's box, picks up a little dirt, rubs it on the bat. Feller back on the rubber. Comes up to pitching position. Here's the pitch. Got the ground ball back through the box, going out over the ball rolls out into center field and here comes Hendrick around third base and scores Williams sliding into third a single for Joe DiMaggio right through the box over second base McCoy racing over to his right goes for the ball he's but it rolled out into short center field Hendrick scoring Williams sliding into third and the score is now American League one and the all-star service team nothing on the Baseball Lifer podcast, on our special about the All-Star Game, the way it was. The All-Star Game has only ended three times with a home run, what's now called a walk-off home run. One of those we've already heard from 1941 with Ted Williams. Stan the Man Musial hit a walk-off home run in 1955. The All-Star Game was played in Milwaukee that year, and Earl Gillespie, the voice of the Milwaukee Braves, describes the ending of that game. In the last half of the 12th inning, 
Financially, sends up Ben Musial, Willie Mays, and Ted Klazowski facing the big right-hander, Frank Sullivan. Nobody on base and nobody out. Sullivan's first pitch is down. It's one hammer to drive back to the right field. A long one. The ball game is over. In the last half of the fourth inning, Ben Musial, who has gone over three, hit the first pitch. Deep into the right field bleachers, and there's a mob scene down at home plate as he's greeted by the entire National League team. Home run for Mobile in the last half of the 12th inning. A tremendous thrill. Earl Gillespie describing Stan Musial ending the 1955 All-Star Game. A year later, the All-Star Game was played in Washington, D.C. in 1956. Griffith Stadium was on its last legs, but they would host the 56 All-Star Game. And Ted Williams was up at the plate, and the voice of the Washington Senators, Bob Wolf, described what Ted Williams did. Ted Williams coming up, and you can hear that crowd in the background playing in his 12th All-Star Game. Batting 368 as he went into it today with five homers and 30 RBIs. Big Ted's had four batting titles. And in 1941, he starred in the All-Star Classic, his home run winning it. They're playing Williams, ganged up on the right side of the infield. Three infielders over there. Here's the pitch, and there's a high fly ball on a deep right center field. Snyder is going back near the bullpen. He's up against the bullpen. It's in there for a home run! Up until that time, Bob Wolf was basically an unknown quantity on the national scale. But when he did that broadcast of the 1956 All-Star Game, he got noticed, and he was tagged to do the World Series in that same year, 1956. He would cover Don Larson's perfect game. We played his highlight from that last week on our show about perfect games. He would also broadcast the 1958 and the 1961 World Series, and all that from his job on the 1956 All-Star Game. In 1959, the two leagues started playing two All-Star games every year. They did that through 1962. We only have one sound from that time frame, and that's Yogi Berra hitting a home run in the second All-Star game of 1959 at the L.A. Coliseum. The voice on this one is the voice of the Giants, Russ Hodges. Now the pitch to Yogi. There's a swing and a long drive to right field. It's got a chance. Back is Aaron. And that ball is gone for a home run for Yogi Berra. And it is amazing if that is Yogi's first all-star game home run. He's had a lot of other hits. He's played in a lot of all-star games. But that is his first home run in all-star competition. And the American League leads at... Russ Hodges describing Yogi Berra hitting a home run in the All-Star game in Los Angeles at the Coliseum in 1959. Five years later, it's 1964, Shea Stadium is brand new, it's the talk of the league, and the All-Star game was played there in that year, and in that game... You would have the third and last, to this date, walk-off home run. Maybe this coming Tuesday, 
the next All-Star game will end with a walk-off home run. Who knows? But if the game was tied 4-4, bottom of the ninth, with the Phillies' Johnny Callison coming to home plate at Shea Stadium. The announcer is the Senators' Dan Daniels. Two out in the ninth inning. American League four, National League four. And Don Callison has popped to short and fly to center. The left-hand batter against right-hander Dick Raddatz. Right-hander pitching. Swing and there it goes. A long high drive. Deep to right field. It is going, going. Home run for Callison. And the National League wins 7-4. John Callison hitting the first pitch from Dick Raddatz, lines it into the stands in right field. Dan Daniels describing that home run ending the 1964 All-Star Game. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here, bringing you some highlights from the All-Star Game when it meant more than it does today. Up until 1967, the longest All-Star Game had gone 14 innings. That's one I don't have in the collection. But in 1967, for the first time, the All-Star Game went into the 15th inning. The Reds, Tony Perez is at home plate, and Jim Simpson from NBC Radio describes what happened in the top of the 15th. Here is Tony Perez, who's been at bat only once, and he struck out on the 12th. Jim Catfish Hunter still on. Still working as an extra innings, the pitchers no longer have to go just the three innings. Strike one to Perez, a breaking ball on the inside corner. During the regulation nine, a pitcher can go no more than three innings. But once the regulation nine is gone, they run out of pitchers. There's a long drive to left field off the bat of Perez. Back goes Jastrzemski looking up. Home run. National League leads two to one in the 15th. And locking that game down in the bottom half of the 15th inning, would be the New York Mets rookie sensation, Tom Sieber, who would later be called Tom Terrific. But he wasn't even supposed to pitch in that ball game, and if they didn't get into 15 innings, he certainly would not have done. So we'll move forward to 1970. Again, a brand new stadium, Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, had just opened, and the All-Star Game was going to spotlight that brand new stadium. The game went into the bottom half of inning number 12. It was a 4-4 tie. And Jim Simpson again describes what happened. One and one to the waiting Jim Hickman. And right into the stretch. Looking back and throws up the middle. Throws is on his way around. Picked up by Otis. Moses coming to the plate. Throws a throw. He's in. It's all over. The National League win. Fossey, who was slow in getting up, trying to block the plate. The ball wasn't there yet, and Rose just rolled a shoulder into him, and Fossey is being led away. That highlight is shown a lot on television, not only around the time of the All-Star game, but in other situations where old highlights get used. This is one of them. Ray Fossey was never the same after that collision with Pete Rose. The next year, 1971, this was the first All-Star game I got to listen to any part of. 1971 was the year I discovered baseball. 
and I was at camp. I was at Camp Marcella up in Rockaway, New Jersey. And one of the counselors had a radio and said that we kids could listen to the All-Star game until lights out. So if you can imagine, there were eight of us in the cabin. And we were gathered around this radio. And the reception was iffy at best. But we heard part of that All-Star game from Detroit. Detroit had hosted the game in 1941 when the stadium was called Briggs Stadium. By 71, it was called Tiger Stadium. And Reggie Jackson hit a home run that nobody who saw it ever forgot it. Jim Simpson described it along with Sandy Koufax. Ellis has a two-strike count on Jackson. Aparicio leads off at first. Here's the pitch, and it's outside. One ball, two strikes to Jackson. Ellis is doing a fine job. He seems to be fighting his control just a little bit. The last three pitches have been up, and in this situation with a runner on, a home run hitter, the wind blowing out, you know Ellis would like to get the breaking ball down. He's, he's got it up a little bit. Long ball, deep right field. It's three to two. Nobody even turns to look. And just now, round third base. And Sandy, I recall again what you were saying about Doc Ellis struggling and the ball was getting up. Well, Jim, right there, it looked like Doc got the breaking ball up just a little bit to Reggie Jackson. And I mean, he hit it hard. I don't know what I've seen a ball hit any harder or as hard as that one. That would have gone out at the airport. <laughs> it may be at the airport. The ball hit the roof at Tiger Stadium and very nearly left the park entirely. Reggie Jackson hit it. Jim Simpson and Sandy Koufax described it in 1971. A dozen years later, the first and only Grand Slam in All-Star Game history. It was the 50th anniversary. It was 1983. The game was back in Chicago. Fred Lynn of the Angels was the man who hit that Grand Slam, and Brent Musburger, along with the Duke of Flatbush, Duke Snyder, described it. Duke is on color, and Brent Musburger is on play-by-play. -play. The ninth man to come up in the inning, Rod Carew's been at that three times already, as Robin Yount has in Fred Lynn in three innings. Wow. 2-2. Brooks Robinson did the commentary after the home run had been hit by Fred Lynn. So you heard the three-man team, Duke Snyder, Brent Musburger, and Brooks Robinson. That one was from 1983. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. As the years and decades have gone by, the All-Star Game has had less and less meaning. But there's been some fun moments over the years. In 2008, the All-Star Game was held at Yankee Stadium, and this was the real Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. 
And by then, by the time of the All-Star game, everybody knew that 2008 would be the last year for the house that Ruth built, that the new stadium would be open next year. So by now, the broadcasting was handled by ESPN Radio. And the man who's going to come up to plate is J.D. Drew, a guy that my partner Jim Lucas and I broadcast when he was with the St. Paul Saints before he signed his first contract. And, you know, only injuries kept J.D. Drew from being a better player than he was. And as it was, he was in the 2008 All-Star Game at Yankee Stadium at the plate with Dan Schulman and Dave Campbell describing the action. Here's J.D. Drew getting his first at-bat of the night. Drew hitting 302, 17 home runs on the season, the American League Player of the Month. This is Drew's first time in an All-Star game. That's a surprise, isn't it? You know, Pat Burrell of Philadelphia never has made it. And is that Joe Girardi yeah. down there as Girardi's a bullpen catcher? catcher? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Girardi has been in great spirits all week and really enjoying himself. He's had his young son following around at a lot of the activities. The two on pitches lined, deep right field, and gone! J.D. Drew has tied the game! His first ever All-Star at bat is a home run. Michael Young. His first ever All-Star at bat is a home run. J.D. Drew hitting a home run in the 2008 All-Star game, and that one also went 15 innings in the bottom half of inning number 15 at Yankee Stadium. Michael Young of the Texas Rangers is at home plate trying to end the ball game. Now, he didn't have to hit a home run to do it. Michael Young, a great contact hitter, a very good situational hitter. Trying to bring home Justin Morneau with a winning run. Morneau, below average speed. Those who are here are on their feet here at Yankee Stadium. The pitch, a swing and a fly ball to right field. Not that deep. Corey Hart, he will make the catch. Here comes Morneau. Here comes the throw. Safe, safe, and the American League wins it. A two-hop throw from Hart just to the first base side of the bag. McCann caught it, swept the tag across the plate, but a fraction of a second after Justin Morneau slid in safely. That was the second time an All-Star game went 15 innings, but it was a much longer 15-inning game than the one in 1967. That one began at 7 o'clock at night, East Coast time, and was over by 11. This one began at almost 9 o'clock New York time and didn't end until nearly 2 a.m. In our last All-Star Game highlights, we're going to let you hear them back-to-back. Two home runs from the 2018 All-Star Game in Washington, D.C. There were 10 home runs hit in that ball game. When we had the pandemic, I shared with my group uh, a bunch of games. I, I called it the game of the week and I shared games out of my collection and I took some requests for all-star games to be shared and 
One of the ones somebody asked for was this one from 2018. So I'll let you hear two home runs from that game. One by Aaron Judge and one a ninth inning game tying home run from Ryan Joseph Scooter Jeanette of the Cincinnati Reds. John Champy is the broadcaster on this one. Judge at 276, 25 homers, 60 knocked in. One of four Yankees on the All-Star team. This is his second All-Star appearance. Here's the 1 Swing and a high fly ball. Well struck. Left field. That one back there on its way. And that one is gone. Aaron Judge a home run. All rise in D.C. American League on top. It is one to nothing as that one hit the back end of the bullpen in left field. 5-9 and 0 for the AL, 3-5 and 1 for the NL. Next pitch downstairs, ball four. And that's going to bring the tying run to the plate. And Scooter Jeanette is going to get a chance to hit. How about that? No, don't kid yourself. This guy can swing it. Jeanette, who obviously last year had the, the four-homer game. Yep. He leads the National League in batting at 326. He's got 16 homers. Not a big guy, but he's got some pop. And fittingly enough, a guy named Scooter at the plate. Swings and hammers one. Right field. And we are tied. Scooter Jeanette puts a charge into one. How about that? Off the bench, a two-run homer. And it is 5-5. Wow. That was a nutty game. It was 2-1 to one going to the bottom half of the seventh inning. By the end of the ninth, it was 5-5. Five to five, And when it ended, the American League had won it 8-6 to six, with 10 home runs hit in total in that ballgame in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the Baseball Lifer podcast with our feature about the All-Star game as it was. In just a minute, I'll be back to wrap up this show following a word from our sponsor, Cortland Computer Services. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think we are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast 
and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. The subject today was the past of our baseball all-star game. And the one that's coming up will be on Tuesday in Seattle. And during the week of the All-Star Game, there's going to be the baseball draft. It'll be very interesting to me to see where guys go who I followed in the recent College World Series and the recent college baseball season. LSU has two guys who are looked at as being two of the top three in the entire country to be picked, pitcher Paul Skeens and outfielder Dylan Cruz. Clem Wake Forest has pitcher Rhett Lauder, and he made a big splash in the Super Regionals and in the College World Series. The draft begins on Sunday night and then carries over into Monday and Tuesday. There are no more 60-round drafts, so guys like Mike Piazza can't be taken in the 61st round the way he was. There are only 20 rounds in the baseball draft as it is today. So the draft and the All-Star game will happen this coming week. Going forward, we're going to have encore broadcasts of the Baseball Lifer podcast until the second Friday in September, the Friday after Labor Day. Starting next week, our encore show will be our Hall of Fame episode, which followed a visit I made to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And the guest on that occasion was Jeff Idelson, who used to be president of the Hall of Fame. So you'll be able to hear that one again next week. We'll release it on Friday like we do. And there'll be other encore broadcasts in the weeks to come. So for now, have a good week, and hopefully you'll join us on some of our encore broadcasts. And then again, join us in September for Season 2 of the Baseball Lifer Podcast. This is Don Wardlow. Take care, everybody. (laughs) 